0: hey welcome to another episode of the carolyn glick middle east news hour i'm your host or hostess carolyn glick and with me this week i really have the the distinct pleasure to welcome uh, Tony Badran Tony Badran is a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he's my go-to guy when I'm trying to find out what's going on in Lebanon, What I'm fi- when I wanna find out what's going on in Syria. So first of all, let me just uh, let all of you see him to show you that he is in fact here. Hi, Tony.
1: <laughs> Hi, Carol.
0: Hi, good to have you on the program. I've been trying oh, to get for Tony for some time, so I'm really pleased that he joined me. Um, You just wrote an important article in Tablet Magazine. Uh, Let me just see if I have the thing here. It's, um, yes, I do. It's called Team Biden and the Syria Playbook on Ukraine. So uh, without further ado, why don't you just sort of sum up a little bit of what your thesis is, and then we can take a deep dive into it. Because I think yesterday, we're taping on Monday, uh, March 21st, um, President Zelensky Of Ukraine gave one of the most obnoxious speeches I think I've ever heard anybody give before the Knesset on Zoom, uh, attacking Israel, browbeating Israel, uh, engaging in historical revisionism of the Holocaust and Ukraine's record uh, in the Holocaust. Um, And uh, let and so there's a lot of scapegoating going on there by Zelensky, by the Americans, by others of Israel. Uh, But um, more to the point, there's a larger story that you pointed out in your article that's going on with Ukraine and Putin and the Biden administration, and it all goes back to what? To our favorite topic, or theirs at least, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. So so give us a little bit of background into your analysis.
1: Sure. So what I tried to show in the piece is that there is a continuum. Uh, First of all, let let me preface this by saying that I view the Biden administration as just the third iteration of the Obama uh, team. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and therefore, I mean, it's, it's not a stretch, it's the same people. Right. Uh, I mean, And, and the, most importantly, the guy leading the negotiations in Vienna is Robert Malley, who was uh, Barack Obama's point man on the Middle East. And so he's a central figure in implementing uh, Obama's vision uh, for the region, which I had discussed uh, in, an, in another article and Tablet, uh, uh, co-authored with Michael Duran, uh, called The Realignment which uh, described what that vision was uh, uh, that, that uh, Barack Obama had for the Middle East and for the U.S. posture in the Middle East. And so can you explain I,
0: it a little bit? Because that's actually, I mean, I think in order to understand, I had yes. Michael on, uh, I think, two two episodes ago. And maybe what I had really wanted was to have you both on together. And so we're just going to have to do that now that we're having you both sure. separately. Uh, but uh, let's just uh, briefly summarize what what the thesis is behind the realignment, which I certainly agree with.
1: So so the the briefest way I can put it is that uh, Barack Obama sought to upend uh, America's posture in the Middle East, as it had been traditionally for the last 70 years, uh, and uh, to realign U.S. interests in the Middle East with Iran. Uh, uh, As a result, uh, relations with traditional allies like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, even Turkey, would be downgraded, uh, and Iran's position as the preferred uh, or principal partner of the United States would be elevated. That's uh, uh, the short uh, and sweet and,
0: what, and to what end? Uh,
1: so here's a that's a good question. I am in the process of kind of re-evaluating some of my assumptions about that. Initially, uh, we had uh, discussed some uh, po- possible motivations for it in terms of Rational motivations, uh, if you like. Basically, that uh, they thought that uh, alignment with the old traditional alignments that the United States had in the region had placed the United States uh, uh, on a war footing with Iran and therefore embroiled the United States in multiple wars in the Middle East that were to the benefit of these allies who were kind of using the United States to further their interests and somehow were poisoning their relationship with, with Iran unfairly, which could have actually been resolved and could have led to a partnership, a very fruitful partnership in managing the Middle East. Uh, I still think that that is definitely true at some level, but I also believe that there is another element to it that is not rational, that is more emotional, identity-based, um, and uh, and that sort of draws this screw towards Iran in in a different way. And you saw hints of it in you know in when Barack Obama spoke about you know how Iran you know. Yeah, they're anti-Semites, but they kind of use anti-Semitism as an organizing principle and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of other things that are uglier things and things that are related, which is something that Mike and I discussed in the piece, that are related to the uh, re-formatting of domestic politics in the United States as well that are reflected in this foreign policy. Uh, But... I don't want to get get too much into it. I mean, that's, I'm still working this out, but what I said, the point I said about how. I I uh, don't,
0: I don't know that. I mean, just to add my two cents here, I I don't know that these things are, are, are different from one another. I mean, I I don't see these things that you're discussing as, as distinct concepts. I think that they're part of a longer continuum of thought process or, or of a responsive uh, uh, process of, uh, of prejudice. I mean, uh, you can understand why American policymakers, particularly after 9-11, might be looking to get away from some of the, excuse me, some of the Sunni Arab uh, regimes, like the Saudis, whose nationals were involved uh, in carrying out 9-11. Um, but um, although, you know, why would they think that it would be better to support the communist uh, regime over Saudi Arabia, um, where Saudi Arabia was essentially an anchor of U.S. Uh, power in the Middle East. And, right. I, I, think, and, I think. I think nine
1: eleven. Nine eleven. I think uh, uh, distorted a lot of people's uh, rational thought process and gave room to those who wanted to push this Iran angle uh, to to. To push this anti-Sunni uh, uh, line in the United States which gained currency for, the, for a long time I do think that counter as a, as a general guiding principle of US policy in the region in, in, in the way that it manifested itself over the last 20 years uh, has been catastrophic for strategic thinking in the United States and for proper understanding of why these alliances matter and the nature of these alliances and the nature of these allies uh, and like I said opened a lot of room for um, for people to start planting uh deliberately misleading concepts, as well as some of them that are just malinformed. Uh, but I but I the, the point I'm trying to make is that this is the short uh, 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 uh and sweet of it, the idea of of, uh, of sort of moving away from traditional allies toward Iran. That was what I believe was uh Barack Obama's uh policy. Uh, and I the reasons for it are things that I'm, I'm working out, but what I explained, I still uh, think holds. Um, so this is, this is an important uh, background to the piece I wrote because you have to understand this idea of realignment to understand why this is so central. And that's why I'm saying it's more than just a rational geopolitical play. There is something far more uh, emotional and personal and identity based in this because of the, t- of the nature of the prioritization of it, of this zeal uh, to get it done um, uh, and, and, and uh, almost the, the, the glee in which they are, uh, uh, they look to enrich Iran and empower Iran and, and act as Iran's lawyers uh, effectively. Uh, you know,
0: I was thinking about it the other day uh, just in terms of uh, um, comparing it to healthcare. Right, that healthcare was the most important issue in the first term for Obama, and uh, and then uh, Ben Rhodes said that uh, reaching the deal with Iran was most important issue for their second term. And I was looking at, I was thinking about them both in in terms of uh, Obama's pre inauguration pledge or or pre election pledge, four days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, and in and each in their own way. Uh, does fundamentally transform the United States, you yes. know. So I, yeah. I I think that I think that if you're looking at it from his anti-colonialist or anti-imperialist mindset, which is inherently anti-American because of the way that he defines the United States and American power, um, I think that you can you can see them in his in his thought process as as two sides of the same coin, uh, transforming the United States at home. Changing completely the social compact between the individual and government through healthcare and the nationalization of healthcare, and then um, and then and then uh, internationally by aligning the United States with the foremost state sponsor of terrorism against its allies.
1: Right. No, I, I do believe that that it is a transformational foreign policy by design. Yes. No. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You don't. You don't mount. Uh, revolution on the last seventy years of the United States posture and L- alliance systems, and and all the and all the benefits that are um, uh, that are reflected in domestic uh, uh, policy and domestic politics in the United States, uh, and 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 not have it be uh, by design transformational. I mean, it it, it goes without saying. So uh, let's get so to
0: your your article then. So yes, so
1: so w- with this in mind. Uh, what I do is I uh, draw the thread, the common thread that has existed in this triangle of the Obama team, Russia, and the Iran issue, and where it has played itself out. Uh, I look at it, I, I call it the Syria playbook, and I say that it started in Syria. So this, de- this dance between Team Obama and Putin started in Syria. And I trace back the relationship that uh, Obama had with Putin. A lot of people saw uh, um, that you know that we were uh, somehow at odds with Russia in in Syria because a lot of people believe, especially on the right, which is really funny to me, uh, that somehow Obama really was gung ho on regime change in Syria. It's absolute nonsense. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's demonstrably nonsense. It, it's it's the kind of thing that you can point to and show the reluctance. Even in asking for Assad to step down, how long it took and how tortured it was and everything else that he did and said afterwards, which, um, which supports this thesis. But nevertheless, there is this uh, impression in the United States, especially, uh, including on the right. That 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 the that Obama was uh, was anti um, Assad and moving against Assad, and then the Russians came in to support Assad, and somehow we were at odds with, with with Russia, or that his or maybe his weakness invited Russia. That's another kind of maybe contradictory claim. But there are multiple uh, versions. Uh, what if you actually trace uh, very closely the the trajectory of U.S. policy in Syria under Barack Obama, which is what I what I did at the time, um, you'll see a very deliberate dance from day one, from 2012, you have um, an explicit partnership with Putin. Whenever, And and this is important too, because this is a pattern, uh, that's why I call it the playbook, right? So this is a play that they're using again today with allies. Whenever allies, NATO allies at the time and regional allies, urged the president to move in Syria, to lead in Syria, to support the anti-Assad movement in Syria, or uh, with a rationale that this is an anti-Iran policy, right? And and everyone thought, because nobody understood the realignment as a guiding principle, everybody thought that this is, is, if Saudi Arabia and Turkey and and Israel, and everybody kind of is on the same page, what are we talking about? France, Britain, I mean, there was a consensus on this. Uh, what does Barack Obama do, he, th- th- uh, he brings in the Russians into everything and says, no, no, you, you have to go talk to the Russians. You have to go talk to the Russians. And everything, uh, so he was using the Russian veto by proxy to swat away all the uh, allied uh, pressure on him to, to, to back the, to back this move in Syria.
0: But can you remind me for a second, because I was trying to remember the chronology myself, Uh, Barack Obama was supposed to retaliate when uh, he set the red line and and, uh, Assad uh, gassed uh, the Syrians again. Um, That was before Russian
1: forces came into Syria, correct? So his
0: first use of Russia, when was that?
1: So I, I started, it depends like how you look at it. I started in 2012. There was something called the Friends of Syria, which is an international forum of US allies that was trying to operate outside the United Nations Security Council because uh, the Russian veto in, on the Security Council. So uh, Barack Obama nullifies this new forum by bringing the Russians into it, by saying, no, no, you have to go to the Russians anyway, right? So that's the first thing on the political level. Then later in 2012 is when he makes that comment about the red line in uh, the chemical weapons red line. And,
0: and when then, did Syria break it? In 2014 and 23? I can't well, remember
1: when he- uh, No, so, so Syria was breaking it incrementally from the end of 2012, but really the big attack happens in August 2013. 13. And that's when Obama becomes really embarrassed, also trapped by his own comment about the red line, which he since has said he regrets the most in Syria. He regrets ever boxing himself in with that comment and calls his decision not to enforce it his proudest moment in office, that he was able to escape the The pressures of U.S. allies who were conniving to get him to get involved in Syria. Now, what he doesn't say in that question is why. It's because that's when the talks with the Iranians were going in full swing. And in uh, and and remember, in November two thousand thirteen is when you get the joint plan of action, the first the interim interim deal. That that was when and that
0: was when we first discovered that the Americans had conceded uranium enrichment to Iran.
1: Right so okay. this is so this is when it's coming uh, yeah i mean they had, you know they they were shredding we knew that they were going to shred the united nations security council resolution and so on so we we started seeing the tr- where this is going uh, in at the end of, du- of 2013 so this happens august 2013 there is no way on earth that this late a date Barack Obama was going to intervene in Syria against the Iranian, uh, an Iranian client. So um, at the time, you'll see there was a lot of uh, uh, there were letters being exchanged between him and Khamenei uh, about uh, about Syria and so on, especially in 2014 when you have ISIS coming in. Um, but uh, the uh, the point is. Uh, he turns to the Russians. Right. And when was
0: that? When was
1: that? September 2013. Okay. So that's when he gets the Russians to deal, uh, the deal to get uh, Assad's uh, chemical weapons out. So that's when you know that he and the Russians are are, are dancing together in Syria. And far from Russia being uh, a, an opponent in Syria, it's actually an ally in Syria. And so, uh, and toward the same objective, which is shielding the Assad regime from uh, from all those in the region and in Europe who wanted to take him out.
0: You know what's so interesting is that you know when you you place that together you see that um, not only was uh, his urge uh, to appease Iran and to uh, align the United States towards Iran uh, foremost in his mind, but at the same time it was also trouncing Israel, right? Because he used and abused, he abused APAC. At that time, right, with the with the red line and the lead up, he knew that he was not going to attack in Syria, and so he threw
1: it on Congress. That's why he threw it, and he hung
0: it, and he hung APEC out to dry because he said to APEC go lobby Congress this was not an issue that APEC cared about and they f- and he forced them to go and they thought oh well right. if we go and we lobby Congress then maybe Obama won't be abusive towards us but he didn't they didn't realize that Obama was already being abusive towards them when he told them to lobby Congress that it was right. all a setup uh, he set them uh, up the, the,
1: yeah the, the whole play to throw it on Congress was a setup but it was also a giveaway I mean that's when you knew right he was just trying to dodge responsibility for it um, but uh, um, and also, I mean, in two thousand thirteen, remember the United the um, uh, the Israeli Air Force was targeting Iranian weapons shipments, including Russian-made uh, Yakhont anti-ship um, uh, cruise missiles uh, to Hezbollah, and there was a uh, there were Israeli strikes in Latakia and, and so on in Syria, and uh, the. Obama team was gleefully leaking that the Israelis were not getting all of the shipments.
0: They were also so, leaking the I- Israeli attacks. I mean, they
1: can't... Right, no, that, that's my point. Yeah. Right. And, but 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 also say, not just leaking the attacks and and kind of saying, oh, yeah, and they didn't get them all anyway. Right. So so already you saw that uh, aspect uh, of, of the relationship toward Israel and uh, what was ahead with this realignment uh, posture. So... Um, that was so. That was a turning point in in November two thousand thirteen. You get the the interim deal, and then in February two thousand and fourteen, Russia moves into Crimea. So, what I'm proposing in the article is that this was a form of payment that Putin sought in in the Ukraine for the favor in Syria, having seen that. The role of, of Russia is critical for the United States to fend off any uh, uh, um, uh, attempt to derail its agenda with the Iranians.
0: It's so funny, so- right? Because, because if the, the major beneficiary, aside from Iran, of the Iran nuclear deal, is Russia, which was Absolutely. able to reassert its presence in the Middle East for the first time since it was kicked down in eighty-two, so they're the big right. so that, winner, and then they right. take more,
1: right? So that's that's the next step. So now we so we we speak, we start to see the initial bites in Ukraine in two thousand fourteen, in Crimea, in Luhansk and Donetsk, and all of that. They start to nibble in in the east, and then we move to uh, to March of two thousand and fifteen. And when, when there was a renewed effort against Assad in Syria, and, and this was at an advanced date, Obama was just on the cusp of getting his nuclear deal with the Iranians. But he had a big problem, right? This Iranian um, partner of his in the region uh, was basically useless in, in maintaining, uh, in keeping things under wraps, right? So in Iraq already... They were, they, were, they were getting really badly bled and the United States intervenes on the side of the IRGC uh, in, in, uh, in Iraq. In Syria in 2015, they were getting bled very seriously and uh, the late uh, Qasem Soleimani goes to um, Moscow and they're preparing for the Russian intervention. There is a channel between Robert Malley and the Assad regime uh, the journalist uh, Nir Rosen who is carrying messages between the two and he brings n- a message to uh, to Mali that, uh, uh, informing him on behalf of the Assad regime that the Russians are preparing to come into Syria uh, uh, militarily. So the later posture where the administration at the time starts saying well, oh, we were surprised this is this is such a surprising move by Putin, they knew in advance that they were coming in. So... Uh, uh, they were fine they, with that,
0: right? Because they wanted to reward Iran by keeping well, President I mean, power. They,
1: they, uh, they were fine with it because it was now, it sealed the the, uh, the deal in Syria that Assad now, which uh, Barack Obama also in 2015 called, as, called uh, Syria an Iranian equity. That you know that we respect. Uh, now that's safe. The the Russians, in other words, are the ones who are going to guarantee basic tenets of the deal and the realignment. So um, the the deal happens in June two thousand fifteen. Fast forward a couple of months, the Russians are uh, uh, come into Syria in September, um, and 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 you know they establish a historic. Uh, 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 sort of a turn of event a turnaround turn that they are now have a Mediter- a maze on the Mediterranean, something that they really didn't even have during the Soviet period. I mean Tartus yeah. wasn't really a base. Now it's a base. now it's a real thing uh and so now he, and and it's on the southern flank of nato and it's on the eastern mediterranean which is an important also uh conduit for energy for europe so this is a coup uh, for for the russians and this also goes against some of the other stuff that's being said today about russia about the idea of nato expansion and that somehow we put it okay whatever one thinks about that also, in, in 2015, the Obama administration brought the Russians to the Eastern Mediterranean. That's not quite NATO expansion. That's a, a very serious threat against NATO. And when Turkey, Turkey twice had Russians with the Russians in Syria, uh, and in both times, especially the second time after their, intervent, their intervention, there was a push uh, or, or a fear that Turkey might uh, invoke Article Five of NATO to to summon common defense, and Barack Obama and pretty much everyone else, really in NATO, uh, uh, made sure, like lobbied like hell to make sure that that doesn't happen, uh, and ended up with a with an Article Four only, which is like some sort of a condemn or a solidarity and condemnation, but no, nothing of uh, no Article Five. So. Uh, So it was very clear, and at the time, they wanted the Turks to be weakened in northern Syria because they wanted to wrap up the whole uh, uh, Aleppo situation. So by uh, late. uh, so this is late 2015, by early 2016, they're already in talks with the Russians uh, in in the the, uh, lead-up to the Aleppo campaign. Uh, Robert Malley is talking with Alexander Lavrentiev, the envoy of Putin, uh, there's a, t- a lot of talk about ch- uh, exchanging intelligence or not. Th- the Pentagon had to raise hell that no, we can't <laughs> share intelligence with the Russians. Uh, um, John Kerry was going out threatening the Syrian opposition that they have to remove themselves from Al Qaeda, otherwise the Russians are going to bomb them to smithereens, etc., cetera, etc. Et so there's a partnership and a dance that leads all the way to the end of the of the term, uh, and which and which really caps uh, four years. Of, 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 a, of a two-step with Putin in Syria, uh, at the center of which is the protection of the Iran deal, but also of the equities of Iran in the Levant.
0: Okay, so now let's fast forward for a second to Biden right? Because uh, that's where we're fighting. Now Russia has invaded Ukraine and the United States seems to be, I mean, you, you look at the US media and it's all filled with fear of war between the United States and Russia, the beginning of World War III. But you look at what the United States is doing and um, they're pretty clear that no, uh, we're not going to go to right. war for Ukraine. No, we'll give them the minimum that we can get away with politically. I, mean, I wrote last week uh, in, in Israel Hayom that that essentially. Uh, the the spinner in the works was Ukraine's resistance to Russia. That Ukraine wasn't. Uh, I don't think that they anticipated Ukraine fighting this hard. I don't think they anticipated uh, Zelensky uh, capturing the imagination of uh, of of uh, of Western uh, of the people of the West uh, with his with his uh, seeming uh, you know uh, with his with his powerful defense of his country under under fire. Um, so I, I think you know they 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 kind of I mean they didn't kind of they they essentially invited Russia into Ukraine when when Biden said in late January if it's minor incursion later, is right. not going to do anything and Germany of course was acting as as Russia's unofficial spokesman in in, in Berlin and in Brussels and in the right. United States and Munich so
1: and that's know, I, the key Germany is really the key right so that's the tell it precedes really it predates. The start of the war. The the real. You mean the Nord Stream two? Uh, That's uh, correct.
0: And, and That's correct. Biden's yeah. end of Trump sanctions on on the popular Correct.
1: Popular once virus. once Biden uh, waived sanctions on Nord Stream two, uh, he basically sealed uh, Ukraine's fate in that regard. Uh, the the reason why um, Putin had only taken small-sized bites of Ukraine before. Um, you know, I, 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 I put them in context with Barack Obama in, in the deal. But since then, in the 2016 to 2020 period, things really weren't advancing anywhere near what we're seeing today, obviously. So um, the reason why is because the Nord Stream 2 was his alternative uh, 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 pipeline to feed gas into Europe. Otherwise, he would have to go through Ukraine. If so, there's you 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 know you cannot damage and you know and sabotage your only artery to to Europe before you build an alternative. So so once Biden waived the sanction and they completed the pipeline, that's when he knew that's now he has something else and he can go in. And in fact, if he destroys the Ukraine infrastructure, which I think he did in part, he started targeting. If you do that. Then there's no alternative other than Nord Stream 2, which Biden has greenlit. So that's really the main uh, uh, impetus for it. But again, what is the other priority that the Biden team uh, uh, declared immediately upon entry into into the White House is that they're going to get the deal back. Right. They're going to get the deal with Iran back, and you know, and to. You know, take Iranian assets off of uh, like the Houthis off of um, the terrorism list, and so on and so forth. So they signaled their priority again, and and I think that it would not have been lost on Putin the 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 uh, this uh, sort of juxtaposition of Nord Stream two and the reinvigoration of the Iran realignment. That's that's the common thread, or picking up that common thread that had started in Syria. And let's say 2013, and 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 was paused under uh, Donald Trump, and now was was resumed again.
0: So, do you think? Um, I guess maybe I'm I'm speaking non chronologically, but you 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 mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, do you think that uh, his maximum pressure campaign was making a difference? Uh, uh, do you think that it was having a strategic impact in terms of the Syrian regime, in terms of uh, Russia's relations with Iran or anything else or do you think that it was more just a tactical th- uh, uh, impediment for I mean one of, Iran? one of the
1: one of the things yeah one of the things we have to keep in mind that the maximum pressure really barely lasted two years right I mean it wasn't it's you know the, the we didn't pull out of the deal under uh, President Trump until 2018 anyway right um, so um the, the amount of time that was required and, and everything kind of happened incrementally. It didn't happen at once. It didn't happen all maximum. It was bit by bit by bit, which was unfortunate because of all the other stuff that was happening. And that, and that other stuff also plays a part in today's narrative, because as I'm talking about here, the uh, Russia
0: gate, uh, correct the Ru- uh, the Ukraine uh, impeachment, right, obviously. right?
1: So, so there is an instrumentalization of, uh, Putin. I say I, I, in the article, I draw a distinction between, the actual Vladimir Putin, the head of state of Russia, and "quote unquote" Putin, right, which became uh, uh, a sort of a, a, a political cudgel inside the, or an instrument inside of U.S. politics uh, since uh, since the uh, during the uh, Donald Trump years. Yeah,
0: I actually um, highlighted it, and I think that it's worth reading just so people can get sure. a sense of of it because I think it's very important and it's a key point. It says. For the Biden administration, unlike for Obama, there are necessarily two Putins. There's Vladimir Putin, the realist head of state. He's a stone-cold killer, to be sure, but he gets a job done in rough spots like Syria, where he helped keep America out of another Middle Eastern war, while holding in check U.S. allies and their domestic neocon lobbyists who wanted to drag us into that conflict and spoil the Iran deal. He's a thug, yes. But it takes a thug to ruthlessly pound Islamist terrorists like ISIS and keep the Israeli Air Force grounded. Then there's Putin, the devious monster who hacked our elections to install a puppet in the White House in an all-out assault, on American democracy that even some Republicans deplore. Clearly no compromise is possible with that kind of hellspawn. bond. But if Putin was instrumental in neutralizing pesky U.S. allies of old with his entry into Syria, while Obama was, uh, while Obama conducted the real business with Iran, Putin is equally useful towards team Obama, towards. Um, hmm. That same purpose. Yeah. Towards it, towards the same end, browbeating U.S. allies to, uh, put in danger by the Iran realignment and to keeping their mouths shut while the 2.0 uh, deal is is sealed. So, right. so I, I think that that's a key point because, um, you know, we're being, we, be, Israel is being attacked and we're being told that we're being insufficiently anti-Putin, right? Uh, yes. Even though the only reason we have to deal with the real Putin is because Obama put him there in the first place on our northern border. And um, and so, you know, they use the the bogeyman Putin against uh, against Israel in order after empowering the real one. And they're doing the same thing in Ukraine.
1: Yes. So the way you see the you you see it is in the uh, messaging campaign that they're 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 putting out. Right. So they're the way they're framing their their uh, fight with Putin. okay It's a fight between democracies and autocracies, right? Uh, so they're pegging it to the Putin character in as it's instrumentalized in the United States, which is an attack on our election and our democracy and so on. So there's this, uh, the, the club of autocrats versus the club of democracies. And somehow Israel, you're not uh, behaving like a democracy. We should maybe review what common values we have with you. I mean, same thing, you know, goes to the, for the UAE and the Saudis who are should we really consider? I mean, I mean, sure, they're autocrats; they would side with autocrats. But but you, Israel, too. So this is obviously just messaging, right? So this is the uh, th- there's um it's a campaign; it's an info campaign that's being clearly orchestrated. When you saw you know Victoria Newland uh, say that Israel has to, you know cannot be a haven for sanctions busting for the I mean it's 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 amazing because it's it's purely a projection of what they're doing with the Iran deal and Russia. The Iran deal makes Iran into a sanctions haven for, for, uh, for, for Russia. They are protecting key investments and a role that the Russians are going to have as part of that deal that is going to get them billions of dollars And that's what the Russians in what I call in the article, sort of exquisite Soviet humor, is when they stop these negotiations cold and say, no, 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 here's what you're going to do. You're going to come out and publicly state that your deal is going to actually give us, uh, uh, is going to be waived. There's no no sanctions going to be applied. Right. On, on our dealings with the Iranians. I mean, we all know that it's in the deal, but we want to hear you say it publicly. It was a, it, it was, it was, it was Soviet humor. It, it was, I mean, it was classic of the genre. And they get it. And the well i mean I
0: think that that's actually a critical point because here what we're seeing is the lie of the u s sanctions regimes right I mean and if you already want to fundamentally transform the United States what better way to do it than in undoing the united States undoing the us dollar as a global currency because the swift sanctions and the banking sanctions that they're placing on Russia are forcing a lot of countries that otherwise would be happy to remain in the dollar centric economy to do non-dollar denominated transactions with russians the the uh, i think the indians excuse me just signed a very large uh, oil uh, oil deal with russia that's going to be paid in rubles and rupees and right. saudi arabia just uh, just did a major transaction with china that's going to be done in chinese currency so i mean these are these are steps that the united states is, that right. that the united states has instigated by by sanctioning uh, Russian banking. Well, well,
1: these are these are these are hints as to these are disgruntled allies who are hinting at what uh, could happen. It's not yet. I mean, you know, the for the yuan to become a global currency for oil trade is still a ways off, obviously, but the Saudis are clearly signaling displeasure. And And the Saudis
0: are interesting because unlike the Israelis, uh, the Saudis are very, very vocal. I mean, they're sort of the new Benjamin Netanyahu, right? I mean, the Saudis and to a degree, the UAE and Bahrain are, are much more outspoken in their opposition to the Iran nuclear deal than they were in 2015. And right. uh, they're really making clear that they're headed for the exits. I think uh, you you posted on your twi- Twitter uh, feed and I posted on my because it was a major thing. A, so, the Saudi foreign ministry said, you know, after the Houthis just attacked another oil installation, yes. don't you dare come to us and tell us we have to increase our oil output.
1: Right. Exactly. You know, so that wasn't subtle. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a very clear thing. It's because, because, oh yeah, you know, we're going to shut down American energy production and we're going to give the Iranians billions of dollars and talk about removing the IRGC from the FTO. Uh, oh, and, and hey, uh, if you don't pump more oil, we have to question your loyalty as an ally, Saudi Arabia.
0: Why uh, are we refusing to put the Houthis back on yeah, oh, the terrorist absolutely. organization?
1: So it, it's 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 insulting, but it's, it's deliberate, right? So um, that's um, to your point. So th- there, uh, in addition to all of this browbeating of allies, at the same time, as they're talking about this moral outrage about Putin, there is at the same time. Their deal guarantees him a a bunch of money from the Iran deal, and and uh, that the United States is brokering uh, with Russian help. I mean, <laughs> you can't make it up. So it's it's really uh, it's actually
0: uh, it's even worse than that, isn't it? I mean, uh, Russia is negotiating the deal on America's behalf. I mean, that's what Ulyanov is doing, the the head of the Russian delegation. Yeah.
1: But it's—I mean—he's not negotiating something that Robert Malley doesn't want negotiating. No, obviously, right? so, I mean, but you know, I mean, to yeah.
0: subcontract your negotiations with Iran to uh, Russia while you're calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal is kind of—it's kind of amazing, wouldn't you say? It's—it's
1: it's incre- incredible cynicism involved in it, and that's the point. I mean, that's also part of what I call the Syria playbook: is that you had during the Obama years an amazing—you know—the uh, duplicity that they can talk out of both sides of their mouths, at whenever it suited them, that they can be moralizing, you know, posturing in terms of humanitarianism and saving civilian lives and whatnot. And at the same time, you know, Barack Obama can come down and say, hey, listen, uh, 10,000 people died in the Congo. Uh, so why should I, you know, why should I, why should Syria be, you know, a priority? I mean, you know, this is, that's what it is. Like, I'm a cold hearted, uh, stone cold realist and I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be swayed by this emotional stuff. So the point is, they jumped back and forth between these two packs as they saw fit and they kept everyone off balance, uh, as a result because their, their focus was Zeroed in on the Iran deal, and nothing was going to derail them from from that objective. Um, and I think that, if anything, the urgency now has at um, is doubled because um, they're not going to make the same mistake they did last time. Their problem last time is that their deal came at the tail end of their administration; they didn't have time really to consolidate it. They were planning on doing so, but. Donald Trump threw a wrench in the works, and they went crazy. And they—that's uh, why they were so vocal about the priorities, and that's why they removed the Houthis in the, in the very first few days in office, and and they started this. Negotiation, which you saw anyway, the blueprint of it in Robert Malley's writings and Jake Sullivan's writings, and all of these guys—they all had it ready to go, and they're not going to make the same mistake twice. So they're going to do it early, and they're going to seal it early, and they're going to spend the time consolidating it. As what do you,
0: as you make of the of the weird sort of delay that we've been seeing? Um, you know, it was an imminent signing, imminent closure that was three weeks ago, and it still hasn't been closed yet. What what do you attribute that to?
1: I think just the iranians are just getting pretty much everything they can right so uh they know they can and 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 they will and they're trying to get guarantees and certain guarantees now some of them they they can't be given and i think what the problem for robert malley has been to try to explain to these paranoid lunatics in iran that listen these are things i cannot there are things i can give you there are things i can bend the law they can things i can gut there are things I can ignore, not enforce, which is what they did in terms of oil sales from the beginning. There are multiple things we can do, but there are things that are out of my hands. I cannot give you that kind of a guarantee. You mean now, like
0: the, the, the demand that Iran said that nobody can abrogate the deal when it's over?
1: Yeah, something like that. And now, and incidentally, they found creative ways to give them guarantees. There are reports now that they've agreed that basically agreed to keep Iran as a threshold nuclear state, as a guarantee, right? Uh, well, that um, they
0: don't have to remove the uranium that that's they've right. enriched uh, that's from right. Iran, that it doesn't have to go away so they can just get it back anytime they want to.
1: Right. So there's a million ways that they're, they've been trying to negotiate to give them what they want in that sense, those kinds of guarantees. I mean there are there are other types of, 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 of guarantees but the
0: other I mean the other things. thing that's weird about that just just for noting is that uh, you know if, if a Republican president is elected in 2024 he comes into office in January 2025, the deal has all been expired by then anyway so that you know if they if they get this deal through, if they implement it in 2022, then it's basically done and there's nothing there's nothing a Republican administration can do anyway.
1: That's what these guys were trying to tell the Iranians, and that's what they're trying to do now. And they're trying to also do it by, you know, not having to submit it under the INARA, the um, the uh, Iran Nuclear um, uh, active, Activities Review Act, I think is what it's called.
0: It's the unconstitutional uh, uh, law that the Republicans idiotically agreed to pass uh, that doesn't that that allows them to push this uh, transform- transformative foreign policy without getting it ratified by the Senate
1: right but but no but that but the point is like the, any new the Republicans are saying no no this is a new deal and you have to submit it for a congressional review the the um, um, uh, what what is likely to happen is that the uh, tr- Biden team is going to say, no, this is actually just a revival of the JCPOA mm-hmm. and therefore there's no need for it. So they won't submit it for review. So this way they're trying to skirt and, you know, all kinds of interference as much as possible uh, and and protect it for the remaining two years in office as much as, as, as possible. So remember, gen-
0: like, well, just... One, on, no, no, one, one, on, one.
1: One. So remember, I mean, like you, you were talking about the things that expired, right? Were it not for... Uh, the Trump administration in the last minute intervening to, rev- to uh, invoke the snapback and, and, uh, and, and, and extend the arms embargo on Iran under the JCPOA. Iran was supposed to be, it was supposed to be legal for it to, to, right. to lift the arm embargo by October 2020, right. right? That's under the other. So now how are we going to deal with that? And incidentally, who do you think is going to be the primary arms supplier to Iran? I mean, if Russia. you know, Russia, etc. So there's a lot of things that can still move forward, uh, uh, you know, in very bad ways and, and for them to, ha- to kind of protect the deal uh, in the next two years. So, just
0: to sum up, because I, I, I mean, I want to, I want to also touch a bit on, on Lebanon, of which you are an expert, and if I have you here, I, I wouldn't want you to go without talking about Lebanon. But um, what, what basically your your argument, which I think is is correct. I mean, it's, it's almost inarguable, is that when you look at the totality, both of the Obama. Uh, Iran policy and the Biden-Iran policy, which is just a more radical version of the former, um, you see that Russia plays a central role as an ally to the United States in advancing America's plan to realign away from Israel to downgrade and harm Israel and the Sunni Arab states on behalf of Iran, which they want to turn into a uh, a nuclear state and a regional hegemon because they have this concept of what is right and it involves that. Um, and Russia is, is a, is an ally in this. And as a result, the United States is willing to respect not only Russia's equities in Syria and transform them into a Middle Eastern power on this, on the Eastern Mediterranean, but also to give them Ukraine.
1: Uh, Yes, in some. I mean, the the transactions around the Iran deal and the need to protect it and to uh, uh, concede the, the you know the elements that Obama promised the Iranians as part of this realignment require this kind of cooperation with Russia, and require Russia's intervention in Syria to protect not just Assad as a as an Iranian interest, but even the Iranian. Uh, intervention in Syria at the time, which was floundering. So, and 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 Russia. Oh, uh,
0: may, actually, that's worth just uh, pointing out, which was that when Russia came in in twenty fifteen, it all, you know, we were all pretty gleeful at the course of the war that uh, Assad and Hezbollah and Iran were losing. They they were being beaten badly in battle after battle throughout the country, and Russia saved them. And Russia came right. in and was their air force. They were the grand forces and they and they annihilated the opposition and right. you know, and, and induced the refugee crisis in Europe and all the rest. Right. Of I, I don't
1: I don't know if necessarily they would have lost the war. It was possible, but they were bleeding, is my point. And it was and it was showing. It was showing that they can't hold areas. They can't really take and hold areas. The, the Syrian army was depleted. The IRGC and Hezbollah were bleeding badly, even incidentally at the hands of ISIS, because at that time you had the ISIS phenomenon also raging in Iraq. So Hezbollah had to split also in Iraq as well. So there was a lot of stuff happening. And 2015 is also when the Saudis went into the Yemen, into the Yemen war. So there's a lot of uh, multi-front attacks on Iranian assets and that's when the russians come in and it's it's really a protection of of these of these assets it's still there's still a carve out for israel to target iranian assets in syria uh, through this mechanism the conflicting mechanism but that's uh,
0: russia i'm not even sure that the obama administration wanted that you know i mean that no, but was, that's you know, the know, point That's that netanyahu <laughs> was able to negotiate with putin and i don't and i i never got the impression that that the Obama administration
1: was backing this. Are you on mute now or something? Right, no, so I mean, it's definitely, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I think there was a a, a, hitch in my, a glitch in my Wi-Fi. wifi anyway, oh, okay. but the, the, the point is there was, um, yes, it's definitely an Israeli Russian thing because obviously Russia doesn't need to toe uh, the line that, the United States pursue uh, interests independently, and if it, you know, and it has very important dealings with Israel, and so you know, Things can be left, uh, uh, you know, left. But that—that's what makes the campaign that seeks to raise tension and friction between Israel and Russia now very deliberately. That what—that's what makes it so so malicious. It's that at the, you know, somewhere in it is the desire to see Israel trip and break this relationship and understanding with Russia and therefore ground the IAF and limit its ability to go after uh, Iranian assets. Remember, when Obama's team was in in power, they were putting out uh, talkers all the time about how Israeli attacks in Syria jeopardize American soldiers in Iraq. Because there was a guy, I remember this, it was in the Wall Street Journal, a guy said, an uh, administration official says, you know you, you know, you go to a point and if you start crossing Iranian red lines in Syria, then you can start feeling the brunt of it in Iraq against your soldiers. And of course, the Iranians are playing to that. That's why they're putting out this propaganda that their, 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 their strike in Erbil was aimed at, was because of, uh, you know, aimed at, at the Israeli uh, uh uh, spy network, or you know, or or as a retaliation for an Israeli strike inside Iran. So, yeah,
0: but, you know, I mean, we just saw that again this week, which was uh, that the outgoing CENTCOM commander McKenzie said, uh, you know, the genius, the strategic genius that brought us the Afghan withdrawal, right? That he said that uh, yes, it's true that Iran is uh, threatening to annihilate Israel. But you know, Israel has to take into consideration that if it attacks Iran, then it's going to place US forces in Iraq in danger. And I just thought to myself, then why don't That's you make it. them leave? You know, I mean, if you're telling me that Israel can't attack Iran's nuclear installations because it'll 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 endanger US forces, what exactly are US forces in Iraq to do? You know, it doesn't make any sense anymore. You yeah. know. I don't know if you're still there. Are you still there?
1: Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm still so, there. I'm sorry. I don't know why it's glitching now. But yes, no, absolutely. It's absolute. That is the, that is the talker that you're going to be seeing a lot of that somehow Israel, Israel's actions are endangering American interests, endangering maybe American forces, and, and so on. So this is something, this is an old play. Again, the Syria playbook. This is an old play. None of this is new. None of this script is new at all. So these are things that we've uh, we've seen, and these are plays that they've run a million times. They don't have anything new or original here. They're going to run the same thing. But uh, but uh, the uh, the Russians, you know, that's why it was very important for the Israelis not to go, uh, you know, that not, not to be not to be out front on, on the Russia thing, especially when the United States is playing a cynical game with the Russians on on uh, in Ukraine.
0: So why don't we, uh, we haven't exhausted the subject, but I, I, we don't have a lot more time and I'd like sure. to talk to you about Lebanon. Um, you know, this is another area and I'm not sure if it's the exact same thing or if it's a similar thing or it's something totally separate. But just as you have in, in Iran, this complete denial of reality on the on the part of the progressive Democrats, on the part of the Obama-Biden team, um, so too in Lebanon, and this is something that extends also to Republican administrations. Yes. I mean, you could say that Republican and Democrat dem, uh, uh, administrations, really since '79, have been have been obsessed with this notion of a grand bargain with Iran that they simply couldn't accept. That they've never been able to accept any of them. Even Trump. I mean, I had Garrett Gabriel Noronha on the program last week, the young man who exposed, you know, all the details. Of, of what, uh, what, what Mali has already given to the uh, Iranians in Vienna on the show. And even he said, yes, absolutely, the Trump administration believed that the maximum pressure campaign was going to get them a deal with, with Iran. That that's what they thought, and they thought that it didn't succeed because they didn't get a deal with Iran, which I thought was pretty amazing because it's pretty amazingly stupid. But I mean, it shows. Well, just some how- some, of,
1: some of them wanted it. I'm not sure if if it it was if it was widespread. But yeah, there were some people. In no, the- but but, the- but
0: all the- I want to the- say is yeah. that it's amazing how consensual this view is. Uh, you know, and obviously it takes on very different, di- very different. Uh, 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 concept with with the progressives who just want to give Iran the bomb and make them happy and 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 give them give them Israel let them swallow up anything that they want and make a deal with the Americans, but um, but th- then you would have say with with a uh, Trump uh, State Department uh, even with all of its problematic. Aspects, you know, the Trump State Department was not the same as the Obama State Department or the or the Biden State Department. But having said that, they all have this concept that there's a deal to be had with the Moles, which is just fundamentally a misreading of of reality. And I think that there's a similar thing with Lebanon. You know, Lebanon is has been at least since 2007 completely controlled by Hezbollah. And uh, I don't know if you hear me. Uh, right. uh, and and yet you have yes. successive U.S. administrations, Condoleezza Rice, perhaps more than anybody else, empowering uh, Hezbollah and and pretending that Lebanon and the state of Lebanon, the Lebanese Armed Forces, first and foremost, is a guard against Hezbollah taking over when Hezbollah has control of the LAF. So. Um how do you see this? where what do you do? How do you explain this pathology? Yes,
1: yeah, so to tie things up with what I said about the Iran deal, I think in this case it's very obvious, a lot more obvious than even the Iran deal stuff is that this there is no rational thinking here. It's purely emotional. Lebanon is a purely emotional subject matter for everyone in the United States. It has, it has because Lebanon doesn't really matter to the United States in any way. The only way it matters to the United States is because of the presence of hezbollah, okay. So the, everything else, the idea of saving Lebanon and all, that's just emotional stuff. It, 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 it's not coming from a uh, geopolitical, geostrategic or national interest uh, point of view. So uh, the question about, you know, all the other stuff about putting money behind the LAF and so on, it's funny because nobody, tells you, nobody says that the LAF is going to be there in order to do anything against Hezbollah. I mean, it's explicit. No, we don't want the LAF to do anything in like Hezbollah, because if, the, if it does so, there, should, there would be war and the LAF would fall apart. But then you have all these contradictions, again, because this is not rational, this is emotional gibberish, that, and, and it proceeds to uh, create categories in Lebanon that are not real. That's the fundamental thing about Lebanon. It's a, it's a hall of mirrors. Nothing in it is real, right? So we talk about state institutions. Oh, we can build state institutions. That's, 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 a non, that's a meaningless word. It doesn't have any referent in reality. The LAF is not a national institute. It's just nothing. Like everything else in Lebanon. It's just an amalgam of sectarian interests, pure and simple. And it cannot take action against Hezbollah. So what did they do? They reprogrammed it to become an anti-Sunni terrorist force, right? So this is where the counterterrorism policy and the democracy promotion policy converge with this emotional impulse. To actually become a pro-Iran policy in Lebanon, which is what which is what Obama pursued, and which is what unfortunately all the Lebanophiles in the Trump administration pursued in Lebanon as well, and which really strangely is a lot of Israelis seem to be f- sympathetic to this to this point of view about you know the LAF and and elections and opposition. I'm mean, like, what are you talking about? These things aren't real, okay? None of these none of these things are real. There's a Hezbollah problem in Lebanon. Hezbollah, in in, in that Hezbollah is a has a massive military base in Lebanon. It controls everything in Lebanon. It's the most power, uh, powerful uh, uh, actor in Lebanon, and it's about to receive a lot of money as the Iranians get a lot of money from the deal as well. So. It's, uh, United the United States is not going to intervene militarily against Hezbollah, uh, that's that's to be sure. So really what it comes down to uh, is for the United States, as far as the United States is concerned, is just to, to follow the Saudi lead in that sense. The Saudis understood, look, we don't have anything here. The Iranians have it all. The only thing that comes with putting money in Lebanon is to sustain an, an order that's run by the Iranians. Thank you, we don't need that. We can, we can cut it off and we'll just, we'll cut our losses and, and that's it. We'll write it off. The United States never had Lebanon. It was never anything in Lebanon. It just sustains an order that's run by Hezbollah. Now, in in as much as it bolsters the realignment strategy, they're happy to do it. But from a non-realignment point of view, a non-Obama administration uh, strategy point of view, uh, it makes absolutely no sense for the United States to continue to underwrite that place. Just, just let it go. You can put pressure, you can put sanctions, you can cut all, You know, uh, pursue Hezbollah's networks uh, worldwide, you can have an aggressive maximum pressure policy against the Iranians, which will also target them. You can do a whole bunch of things militarily, kinetically, to address the issue of the of the weapons that these guys have in, in Lebanon is something that is going to come up now as a decision for the Israelis as they ponder what they're going to do with the Iranian program and with this missile base on their border and the UAV base on their border. So the uh, I'm not, I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm not advocating or pretending to tell Israel problem, to do. The
0: problem for Israel, of course, is that, you know, I mean, Hezbollah is a terrorist uh, army, so they place all of their missile launchers inside of civilian oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah no, no question. Them. And they're going to have all of their, you know, uh, babies bleeding and mothers And, and it's, not just, it's
1: not going to be only Lebanese babies, by the way, because of the growth in Hezbollah capabilities. There's going to be, unfortunately, a lot of Israeli babies and a lot of Israeli civilians who are going to get killed in a future war. So no, I put. Totally I meant that when
0: Israel attacks. Yes. Israel yes. attacks Hezbollah's missiles, I mean, we saw this in 2006, yeah. we see this in, you know, in 1996, yeah. we saw this in 1982, Absolutely. you know, I mean, this is their way of war. Is getting children killed Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and blaming the
1: Jews. But, but my point is that, uh, so Israel decides, you know, I mean, if, if, if it figures out a way that it can continue to live with this uh, while doing tactical strikes elsewhere or dealing with the Iran uh, threat separately, it's an Israeli sovereign decision. What I'm saying is whatever it is, it should be completely uh, divorced of any illusions that somehow short of such a decision, whether to, to go after it or live with it, that somehow we can build these cockamamie strategies of, state institutions and opposition and elections and civil but that, society. of course, is what
0: our brilliant, you know, Generalissimo uh, Benny Gantz was doing a few months ago when he when he was trying to make a deal with the LAF that we give them humanitarian support because we just love the Lebanese people. Yeah, I America. mean, I don't know. I
1: don't know what, who the audience for this is, but OK. I mean, you know, OK, great. You know, and then the same thing with this business of the, deal, the gas deal yeah. that the United States is trying to secure from Egypt and to uh, circumvent sanctions on Assad in order to feed energy. To to uh, to Lebanon to give them a couple of hours of electricity. Um, the point in that is, you know, there was this all this talk and and winking and nodding that oh, it might include Israeli molecules of gas because of the Egypt, and everyone was so so giddy about it, like somehow they scored some major propaganda point. It's 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 really embarrassingly silly. Um, so all of these things need to be all of these illusions about you know because they're really traps. On the part of the Lebanese. But why the is it a
0: trap? I'll, I'll just play devil or angel's advocate, however you want to look at it. Is there no hearts and minds uh, policy that Israel could run in Lebanon to try no. to? And why is that?
1: For a variety of reasons. First of all, because it, it has no end game. <laughs> I mean, a hearts and minds to do what? To have people come out and say we're pro-Israel? I mean, that's, I mean, that's just not going to happen, right? I mean, that's... And then, and then to what end? What, oh, these guys are going to what? Advocate for peace? I mean, it's the same issue. Uh, assuming that these people exist, which I don't know if they exist in any mass uh, at all, but let's say they do, right? Um, uh, which, by the way, it's incumbent on those who make the you argument. Know, it's all of the all the who Lebanese who were
0: who were protesting in Beirut, and they had baby
1: shark. But who is shark. okay? But who said who said that these guys are pro-Israel?
0: Right? Who are they? They're not pro-Israel. There's no way they'll be pro-Israel.
1: Who said they were pro-Israel? Nobody said they were. Pro-Israel? In fact, in fact, a lot of them made a point to say we don't have an issue with Hezbollah's weapons. That's not our fight. Our fight is economic corruption, right? So, and political corruption. So, there's a lot of misunderstanding about these things. So, I don't see this hearts and minds as having any, I mean, I don't see who the audience for it is, and I don't see what the purpose of it is. But if it is just that, you know, Israel's is trying to say, okay, look, we want, we are, we're not uh, averse to sending humanitarian aid to the poor Lebanese. I mean, okay, whatever. That's fine. But the idea of lobbying or supporting a policy of uh, hey, the United States should pay for the LIF so that the LIF can do something about Hezbollah, so that we don't have to do something about Hezbollah. That's just delusional. That's just delusional. That, that that's the LIF structurally never ever will lift a finger against Hezbollah.
0: You know, I, I think you're right, and I think that I, it, there's something terribly unhinged, terribly unhinged. I mean, I wrote about it in my book, The Israeli connection and in shackled Wardy, I write, write about every week, I think practically in my in my columns in the newspapers. there's something fundamentally unhinged about the way that the Americans view the Middle East, about the way that they view Iran, about the way that they view. And I think that you 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 made a point that's extremely important and and very very necessary for us to think about, you know after 9 11, Uh, Bush went out of his way to say that it's a war against terror. I mean, that means nothing. You know, it's like a war on guns, right? It it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Why don't you have a war against forks? You know, I I mean, these are tools. What is it that you're fighting? And they wouldn't say, and they wouldn't say deliberately because they didn't want to deal with reality. So they just made it all up. I mean, and you cannot be a a great power if you're not willing to contend with reality. And I think that- You know, they there's, are,
1: there's a duplicity involved in it, I think, here, because I think they understand that uh, that that's why they're shifting the goalposts, right? Now it's no longer, the point of the aid to Lebanon and the LAF is no longer to actually take on Hezbollah. Now you use, you use fuzzy words that are completely meaningless. These are weasel words, like to act as a counterweight to Hezbollah. What does that mean? Nothing. Ex- explain to me what that means. It, it means zero. It has no actual meaning or referent in reality. It's just something to sell to Congress to take money. And then when you actually say, well, how do I measure this? They don't measure it in terms of Hezbollah. They measure it in terms of what the LIF is doing vis-a-vis Sunni organizations. And even those they conflate and make up. The ISIS threat, and what ISIS threat in Lebanon? What are you talking about? The Al-Qaeda threat in Lebanon. It's ridiculous. None but of wasn't just that. I mean, at
0: one point, when was it uh, during the, during the uh, I think it was during the Trump administration that you had LAF forces with U.S. forces fighting with Hezbollah forces, uh, uh, you know, Absolutely. right at the, the Lebanese-Syrian yes. uh, yes. border, yes. right?
1: Yes. Right. I mean, uh, the United States was supplying uh, the LAF with munitions, and the LAF was using that munitions to give fire cover to to Hezbollah units, uh, they were in a joint operation. Maybe.
0: Yeah, but you also had U.S. trainers or special forces. Correct. The trainers were there.
1: The, yes, the trainers were there. I don't know if they were necessarily on the field of battle, but what one of the things I did hear is that the LAF were, were contacted at one point and told... Um, look, this is very overt, and it might actually create a problem in our ability to continue to supply you. And look, so, you
0: didn't, right? I mean, you know, I reported about yeah. it at the time. I think you did. Uh, and and uh, other, I think Seth Fra- uh,
1: uh, Fra- um, Franson
0: uh, at the Jerusalem Post reported about it at the time. And, you know, who cares? Let's just yeah, no, keep, you know, let's, let's increase our aid to the to the LAF.
1: So it's two things, right? It's and the duplicity helps because you can switch back and forth, right? On the one hand, it's the emotional impulse, and on the other hand, they sell you things like counterweight or. Long-term investment strategy and things like that, and then they'll start shifting the goalposts. And as
0: gold, made. right? Invest in gold, right?
1: right. As as need be. Well, I mean, gold is actually tangible. There's nothing tangible. I know, tangible.
0: but you can, you could, can, you could. But it's you know, you can pretend. You can say it's a commodity. Right.
1: Right, but it's not. But it's not. It's just thin air, right? That's the whole point. right? It's well, if like you it. don't, if you don't, if you don't, then 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 Hezbollah will complete its takeover, or or the Russians will 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 somehow move in, and there's a well, okay. So what? Let the Russians move in. Who cares? I mean, uh, not assuming they do, right? I mean, like, which is which is not a proven assumption. But they start shifting goalposts and and moving from one argument because it's not rational. It's an emotional appeal, and ultimately, it's a hustle. That's what it is. It's it's a it's a scam. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of constituents in the United States who are pushing for it, and um, there's a lot of people. Uh, in Congress who, unfortunately, buy it. There are a no, lot of people... So let, me ha-
0: let me ask you a question, because I know you have to go, and I, and I don't want to keep you too long. Be, be Incidentally, honest.
1: I made a mistake in, about Inara. It's the Nuclear Agreement Review Act. I, I misspoke, but there you go. Uh, okay, so,
0: so so you you just warned me ahead of time that you're going to have to leave fairly soon, so sure. I, I, don't want, I don't want you to just run off mid-sentence. So let me just ask you a question. What do you advise Israel when we look at the Biden administration? And what do you advise Congress when you look at what the Biden administration is doing vis a vis Iran and Russia, vis a vis Lebanon? I mean, what is your sort of word for the wise, whether you're talking to the Israeli government or you're talking to, to Congress, uh, trying to figure out how, how, to, how to handle this, how to mitigate the dangers, how to minimize the dangers that, that this, that this uh, out of control, very radical administration is working assiduously to promote?
1: So I mean I I obviously I'm, my position is not as an advisor <laughs> to the Israeli no, government or you know but it's like, to Congress, my, my, but I just to, you know, but yes my my point is my job is to write analysis that uh, clarifies okay. what I think it does clarifies so in in what I did with the Ukraine Syria piece is to kind of connect dots because a lot of people, you know, they're very busy and there's a lot of subterfuge and a lot of messaging and disinformation and, and misleading uh, uh, tricks and so on. Um, so there's a lot of noise and, and, and the way I see my job is to kind of cut through that noise and just connect dots and, and present that. And when people see that, then maybe if they have, uh, if they had, um, Misconceptions. if They had misunderstandings. If they didn't, weren't quite. Maybe they had suspicions, but weren't quite sure. Why is the United States doing this? Uh, should, they they cannot possibly be serious. I, I, one one episode I remember from two thousand fifteen involves Yaakov Amidror, who who came in the summer uh, uh, on the eve of the deal, came to Washington and wrote about it at the time in uh, in Israel Hayom, and he was surprised. He couldn't believe it. He was talking to people at the State Department who were talking to him about some sort of a special relationship between the United States and Iran. And he was like, what? This is insane. How is this possible? Because they couldn't entertain that the United States would act in this matter. So there's a disbelief and and, and, an inability to, to, to digest that such a thing could be considered on the part of this particular faction in the United States, which currently holds power. So my job is really more than anything else is to lay it bare and, and clarify it so that people can say, no, all of these assumptions that we're making were wrong. And maybe we need to review our uh, our, uh, our assumptions and our bets and adjust what we do in the mat. Now, it doesn't necessarily always lead to change. Like it doesn't, it's not clear that necessarily uh, Congress will be able to stop a deal if the United States, if the administration moves, right? So wh- whatever one advises Congress <laughs> or not, it, it doesn't necessarily change that fact. So, uh, but in, in the context of Lebanon, which is where I, I work uh, closely, uh, you know, in, including, you know, briefing and, and uh, you know, on the hills and stuff like that, that's where the same approach, I, I use the same approach, is like you need to stop with the delusion, you need to stop. You, you know, you know these words and these things that they're saying. Uh, you have to stop and parse them because they're painting a picture of reality that is not real, and that's kind of how I see my. my so, it, it, in the same way, my analysis about what I just said about Hezbollah and Lebanon, to, you know, um, uh, uh, from the from the vantage point of of Israel, is that look. If you think that the LAF is going to put a a stop to Hezbollah or elections or civil society or any of that nonsense, you are making a bad bet. Now, I'm not telling you you should do this. This is not my place. I cannot possibly presume to to tell anyone to to do anything like that. But uh, uh, whatever your decision ends up being, Right, whoever you are whether it's in the United States or in Israel it has to be based on reality and I see the my work as an attempt to to clarify that uh, to, to the best of my capability
0: well I think you do a very excellent job you did a certainly you did an excellent job in your latest article at, at tablet Thank and you. and uh, I, I try very I've, I try very hard to Read what Tony Badron writes, and and all of uh, you out there in uh, in podcast world, uh, you should do the same because I think you know one of the things that is so stunning, and it's it's even now, and I've been doing this for you know so many years, is it's hard to get your head around it's just how much how major role delusion plays in foreign policy making in Western democracies led by the United States and just how devastating that is for all of our security and future. Um, and, you know, I remember uh, it was, I think it was Claudia Rosette back in, uh, I don't know, the early 2000s when she was still writing for the Wall Street Journal. I don't remember what her, her column was called, but it had something to do with reality. And it's true. We all keep going back to this Yes, but there's reality and then there's your theory. And reality is actually more important. You know, why don't you give it a try as a basis for your policy making? And what we're finding with Biden, and we're finding with with obviously we found it with Obama, we're finding it with this Israeli government uh which is absolutely horrible and we're finding it really you know we found it to a degree in all u.s administrations since the end of the cold war and even during the cold war is that delusion plays a huge role in deciding how people are going to act and so i thank you very much tony for your role thank you. in thank keeping you for it real <laughs> <laughs> keeping,
1: Thanks it, so real. Much, keeping it
0: real all right well we're gonna have to have you back and maybe Maybe it would be what would be really fun is to have you on with, with Mike and maybe Gotti Tab will make a cameo appearance as well and <laughs> just get the whole band together, you know. Sure, sure.
1: that would be great.
0: I'll do lead vocals and you can do bass, <laughs> you know, because you're like the jazz guy, right? So uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well we'll we'll see you again soon and thank you so much for joining me today. I really thank do you, appreciate, Carla, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And keep up keep up the excellent, excellent work.